I read some time ago about a woman who made a very interesting observation about men. She wrote, I've learned that you can tell a lot about a man by how he handles three things. How he handles golf plans that get rained out. How he responds to an airline who loses his luggage. And what he says when the Christmas tree lights are all tangled up. That's true. And that, that kind of leaks out what kind of man you are. You just can't help it, can you? I, I, a number of years ago, I remember traveling, invited to speak out of town to a student body at a Christian college and seminary for their annual Bible conference. And it would be my first visit on their campus. So I took time, of course, to prepare my message and uh, also what I'd wear when I showed up. The right suit, the right necktie, the right shoes, and I arrived, but my luggage did not. The president of the graduate school in whose home I was staying ended up having to loan me some of his clothing for chapel the next morning to fit their particular dress code. And, and so he, he gave me his sport coat. It was four sizes larger than I was. And uh, he gave me a necktie. He said, here, you can wear this one. And it's a necktie I would have never purchased had I chosen it. And even shoes... I had worn a pair of slip-ons, almost really like indoor-outdoor slippers, which wouldn't work. And, and so he gave me his shoes, a large pair of wingtips. I wear 10 and a half. He wore size 13. I can remember just sort of clomping out onto the stage, looking to feel like a clown. <laughs> you know, showing up to speak somewhere for the first time is probably akin to what you've experienced when you're, you're interviewing for the first time with that company. You want to put your, you know, your best foot forward, Right. You want everything to be just right. You don't pack a bag, but you do polish a resume. Every good thing you've ever done, every award you've ever earned, every title next to your name you've ever had on a plaque, it's going to be there somewhere on that resume. Because they're going to want somebody with experience, right? They're going to want somebody with executive management skills, perhaps. They're going to want somebody with personal charisma or or uh, good taste, or the right education, the right sense of manners, and all of those kinds of things. Practically, the people that matter out there, the people that tend to get jobs like those, maybe that you're going after, are what the world would assess as being valuable. And how do we determine that? We determine it based on a person's intellect, or physical attraction, or maybe, in a, maybe even a sense of physical intimidation, prestige. Uh, popularity, connections with the right people, just maybe enough pride to prove to the one doing the interviewing why you ought to get the job rather than those other people. Nobody gets the job because they're humble or holy. In fact, you need to fit in with a crowd and and keep that religious stuff to yourself, by the way. you got to be able to play the game. That kind of thinking, unfortunately, has sort of spilled over into the church, hasn't it? Titus shows up on the island of Crete in the first century, and he has an apostolically commissioned job to find shepherds who are qualified to wear the mantle of leadership in the church. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 5, you notice this little phrase, go appoint elders in every city as I directed you. 
In other words, Titus, you might be tempted to fill that job with the wrong kind of men. So stay on my page. <laughs> stay, stay according to my directions. Here is a resume list that will matter because it will reveal godly character. You see Titus, and I think Paul is implying there are going to be plenty of candidates who want to lead. They're going to, they're going to want the office like elder of the first century, uh, like Diotrephes the elder, who wanted it simply because he loved being out in front and up in front. He loved being the first guy in line so he could turn around and tell everybody how they ought to march. Third John chapter 1 verse 9. He simply loved to be first. You see, Titus, you're also going to run the risk naturally of looking at men for the wrong reason. You know, men with prestige, with power, prominence, charm, maybe physical attributes, intellect, stature in the community, and on and on. Like Samuel in the Old Testament. You remember him? He went looking for a king. And he went to the sons of Jesse, and he assumed that the tallest... The oldest, the one most trained in warfare, the strongest would certainly be God's candidate for the king of Israel. And God said to him effectively, Samuel, that's how the world runs its business. They look on the outside, but I, God, look on the inside, on the heart, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. So if you look at if you look at the resume of a shepherd in Titus chapter 1, you don't find anything. Frankly, you don't find anything about speaking ability. You don't find anything about leadership skill sets or business accomplishments or physical attributes. In fact, the list has almost nothing whatsoever to do with what the man has done. It has everything to do with who the man is. Because what's normal on the island of Crete cannot be what's normal in the church. What's considered normal in the culture can't be the standard of normality for the believer. So the elder is effectively going to change the norm. By his own character and lifestyle, he's going to model a new pattern. And effectively what he's going to do is turn around and lead a congregation into a new Normal. So here's the new normal. Watch this, beginning of verse 8. The elder pastor bishop, he's writing of these, is to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. How's that for a list? I mean, could you imagine that being part of a list of questions you're asking when you're interviewing for a job? Can you imagine anybody asking you the question, are you a good person? <laughs> Can you give me an illustration of self-control? Are you personally devout? Oh no, the average person being interviewed would say, look, the, the, you have no business asking me those kinds of questions. That's none of your business. Those aren't normal questions. Well, it just so happens to be the business of the church. And this is the new normal. Now, not just for elders either, by the way. In fact, as I've gone through this list, I find that each of these qualifications are encouraged throughout the New Testament for the lives of every maturing believer. Many of these 
qualifications listed in Titus 1 are given to us in Galatians chapter 5 as the fruit of the Spirit-controlled life. And as the elder just so happens to be progressing, these are progressing men under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They then lead the flock by way of example. So the flock then has this flesh and blood, this living, breathing pattern they can actually see and hold accountable and watch and follow so that they will know how to live as well under the Spirit's influence. The elder is in many ways nothing more than a living demonstration of a new normal. Because we all pursue it together, don't we? Because we are all wanting to submit to the accountability of the Holy Spirit to whom we answer. So in other words, we're not... Uh, We're not submitting to our culture. We're creating. We're going to create a new culture. We we don't try to fit into our culture. We are determined by the grace of God to redeem our culture and to reform our culture one person at a time by the saving gospel of Christ. And if we don't act like redeemed believers in here, how do we ever hope to redeem anybody out there? If we don't act with reformed thinking in here, how do we ever hope to influence a reformation out there? Remember this distinction before we dive in. While the congregation may progress along in these characteristics, the elder must progress in these qualities of heart and soul. Now, Paul has just given the elders five vices. We looked at those in our last study together. Five vices to avoid should they rise to the authority and office of elder. Paul now gives seven virtues to embrace for those who will be qualified. The first five were negative, and now this set of seven are positive. And we're not going to get through all of them today, so just relax. Okay, The first positive qualification is this. You'll notice in verse 8, an elder must be what? Hospitable. You think that's in the list? Where's that coming from? Well, let me break it down a little bit for you. The word in the New Testament language is made up of two words. One of them is philos. can be translated or rendered strong affection or even love. The other word is xenos, which is the Greek word for stranger. If you wouldn'tly translate this, and I think it's fair to say it it, it effectively follows with this definition. It's a love for strangers. Literally translated, stranger loving. (laughs) Now, he's not necessarily saying you are to love people who are strange. So we're not setting a new standard for the guys your daughter's allowed to date. Okay, so just know that. He's referring to people you you don't know. They're strange to you. They're strangers. Which is... To me, unexpected, because you'd think that the first thing out of the gate in these seven virtues would not be how a man loves people he doesn't know, but how he loves people in here, right? How he loves the flock would certainly be a qualification, and it is, and you'll find other passages certainly related to that. But here he starts out by saying, oh, by the way, here's the kind of man he has to be. Does he show concern? Does he model personal care For those he might not know. And I think the implication here is that loving the flock is going to be too easy. Effectively too rewarding. Maybe a little too self-congratulatory. 
And many men might qualify. They love the church. They never miss the church services. They love the assembly. And many would, would fit that bill. But Titus is, is told to look for men who love and show concern for people when there's no church obligation. Uh, there's, no, there's no family connection. There are no public affirmations. For whatever you might demonstrate where others can see, a lot of this may happen where no one sees. The true test of hospitality then is not what we do for those we like to be around. And we usually hang around people who are like us. But it is showing concern for those who are not like us and unable to repay us in some way. And by the way, this characteristic is certainly extended to the church at large for the believing body. In fact, the Apostle Peter commanded the church, the assembly, to show hospitality to one another without complaint. 1 Peter 4 9, which I think is humorous. Why? Because in that command is the implication that this is not going to be easy, even with brothers and sisters. So do it and don't complain about it. You ought to understand as well, I think, the, the culture of... Paul's day, which gives a little insight to this issue of hospitality. During Paul's day, traveling was especially hazardous if you didn't have anywhere to spend the night. And most often people wouldn't travel far enough where they'd need to spend the night somewhere else. Inns were very expensive and they were notoriously evil. Travelers could very well expect to be beaten and robbed staying in an inn. Plato referred to an innkeeper as a, quote, pirate who held his guests for ransom. (laughs) Inns were notorious for their immorality. In fact, they often served as the village brothel. It would be the last place in the world you, especially as a Christian, would ever want to stay if you were traveling. Because of all these issues and all of these inherent dangers, the world of Paul's day had created over time a system of what they called guests or guest friendships. Over generations, different families would make covenants together and arrangements with each other to give one another accommodations and hospitality when they traveled to one another's region, town, or or village. Often the the members of, of families became unknown by sight just because of time. They were unrecognized. and So they devised what they called a tally system. They would carry half of a coin or a piece of wood, or a piece of metal with an emblem on it, and it had been cut in half. And over the years, when one member of the family traveled to a distant city and needed lodging, he carried with him that half of the tally. And the host family he visited would have the other half. And when those two halves fitted together, the host knew that this was a legitimate member of another family already agreed upon to show hospitality to when they traveled to their area. So, you got that tally. Come on in. That's why the first characteristic you need to understand here from the Apostle Paul would have been so counterculture. Not only surprising that he's talking about loving outside the assembly, but counterculture because... People didn't do that. Paul is saying that the basis for biblical hospitality is spiritual maturity, not family connections, not agreements. It's a love for the stranger 
in need. Here is a new, brand new normal. You open your doors for them. And by the way, the same Greek word for hospitality is found in our English word, and rightly so, hospice and hospital for good reason. They knew nothing of this kind of care, certainly voluntary care, free care. Even the Greeks, with their god of medicine, did not offer free care for the sick. If you were wealthy, you might have a physician attending you, but that was about it. A correct understanding of of, uh, history, Western civilization in the first, second, and third century will show that those who came into the temple of the Greek god of healing... Asculapia. They would spend the night in, a, in the shrine or in the temple, not for medical treatment, because that wasn't offered, even though the rumors abounded that it did. It didn't. They came to sleep in the temple or shrine, hoping that the God of healing would appear to them in a dream and reveal to them the treatment they needed to follow to be cured. It was utterly based on superstition. It was not a hospital. Nobody was there waiting with medicine or some kind of procedure in order to help. Now, both the Romans and Greeks had some kind of rather rugged infirmary for their soldiers. They offered nothing for the general populace at all. What we call today, from the early centuries, charity hospitals, free hospitals, they became the forerunner for the hospitals we know today, which, and today, it has nothing to do with charity. It has to do with insurance, right? But, but the original foundation of it was a creation of the Christian community. It, it grew out of the gospel. And it became a method of delivering the gospel in return. One historian noted there's simply absolutely no evidence of any medical institution supported by voluntary contributions until we come to the introduction of Christianity and a civilized world based upon Judeo-Christian ethic. Christian hospitals revolutionized the treatment of the poor, the sick, and the dying. The Greeks and the Romans built their statutes to their gods and their temples and their coliseums, and their arenas, and their vast system of aqueducts, and even their paved highways. They never built a hospital. In fact, it was, it was remarked upon by historians living during the time of Paul, and even emperors, it, it, and one in particular who hated Christians, who said it so troubled them that when a plague came, everybody left but the Christians who stayed behind to help. Because the norm of Paul's day, summed up by historian Philip Schaff, was simply this, and I quote him, the old Roman world was a world without charity. No concern. Unless they were related to you. Unless you knew them. That was the norm. Paul says, Titus, it's time to find men who will lead the church into a new normal. Who are they? Men who will model care for others who can never pay them back. 
Secondly, let's move on. An elder must model personal conviction. He writes next in line here, they're not only hospitable, but notice they're loving what is good. Again, Paul uses a compound word that begins with the same word, philos, for love or strong affection. And agathos, which is the word typically translated good. An elder loves strangers and he loves what is good. He loves good stuff. That's my word, not Paul's, but that helps you understand it, doesn't it? One ancient manuscript used the same word for a man who loved virtue. That's helpful. Just loves whatever is intrinsically good, which means you're going to love whatever reminds you of God, right? Because as Jesus told that rich young ruler who came to visit him, there is no one good, same word, but God. In other words, no one is intrinsically good, but God the Father, the Son, of course, and the Spirit. So if you want to know somebody who is godly, godlike, they will be walking after the character and nature of God, which is reflected in goodness. They will love things that God would love. The Greek form here could be rendered lover of good things. Now, it doesn't mean he sequestered himself away from all that is bad. But it does mean he doesn't love what is bad. He has personal convictions based on what he truly loves. And what he loves are those things intrinsically pleasing to God. Paul put it this way to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything about that that is excellent, if anything is worthy of praising God about, think on those things. In other words, meditate on those things, dwell on those, accompany those, walk around with those, Ruminate on those, surround yourself with those, spend your time and money on those things. Warren Wearsby wrote in his little commentary, this could include good books, good people, good music, good causes that are excellent, that would in no way violate or offend the intrinsic glory and goodness of God. And why is that kind of man so hard to find who loves good? Because the world is filled with so many men who love what is bad. Which is the nature of man, right? What does the world love? Bad stuff. There's that key Greek word again. Bad activities. Bad causes. Bad language. Bad music, bad thinking, bad habits. That is the current of humanity. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, that one of the signs of a corrupting, decaying culture is that they will be haters of good. Same word. They're actually going to hate What is good? They're going to get irritated over good. They're going to love what's sinful. Proverbs describes them several different ways. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The world delights in doing evil, loves it. It rejoices 
in the perversity of evil. Later in chapter 10, verse 23, the world revels in doing wickedness. They bask in it as if it were a sport. It's just a sport. Sin is just another indoor or outdoor sport. It's just another thing. And they're going to lose the ability to distinguish between what's bad and what's good as they spiral away from the intrinsic goodness of the God whom they've rejected, revealed in this book. So the world is more and more openly in love with bad things and bad activities and bad music and bad people and bad language. And then, it's not finished, it takes another step downward in that it turns around and says, this isn't really bad after all. This is actually good. You guys are just way too uptight. This isn't bad, it's good. They will not only do sinful things, bad things, but they will give hearty approval to those who practice them. Romans chapter 1, verse 30. It's going to applaud. You did that? Oh, wow, way to go. Paul effectively says here, Titus, go find some men in the churches to serve as elders who are going to straighten out the definitions. Men who will form personal convictions after the intrinsic nature of God's goodness And then be able to turn around to the flock they lead and say, no, that's actually bad. And this is actually good. You'll be able to spot that kind of man because he's not only going to tell people what's good, he actually loves it. You see, what an elder loves is revealing. What he wants to linger around what he wants to talk about, what he wants to read, what he wants to listen to, what he looks forward to, what he wants to be in the company of. Paul effectively asks not only elders but congregants, are they good things? Here's here's a challenge. Can, Can you write over the books and magazines that you're reading the word good? That is, it's not offensive to the intrinsic nature of God. It wouldn't violate his character. Can you write over what you listen to or watch or participate in that little word, good? Can you write over the head of your boyfriend or girlfriend the word, good? Can you write over the songs of your, the lyrics of your favorite songs, the word, good? Good. Now that doesn't mean you define good as those things you do in church only. If you can't do them or enjoy them in church, then they're not really good. No, no, no. Uh-uh. That's, not, that's not it. When I go home today, when I go home this afternoon, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to get that hour back. I've been looking forward to it all morning. In fact, if I just hurry up, I'd get there quicker. And when I get up, I might even say to Marcia, you know, that was a good nap. It was good. I mean, I believe God was pleased. (laughs) Now, it wasn't a spiritual discipline. Uh, You know, it isn't something I do in church. Some of you do. You're skilled at it. 
No, what I mean is, is that nap or that novel or that walk in the park or, or that painting or that drive or that game or that sport or that friendship. There isn't anything about it that would be offensive to God, his nature, his goodness. And there are a million things you can do just like that. So the question is, are you developing personal conviction and a love for those things that do not offend his nature? That's the point here. Are are you a Christian under the influence of modeling after, surrounding yourself with that which is good? Whether you are or not, that's the goal. If you are an elder or an elder want to be, you must be a lover of that which is good. Thirdly, He says here to Titus that an elder is going to model personal, common sense. Now, he uses a word in verse 8 that's translated sensible. Elsewhere, perhaps in your Bibles, it might be even here, prudent. Again, it's another compound word that helps us understand a couple of nuances. It's a combination of sophos. We know the name Sophia for wise, along with the added word phreneo, which means to set the mind The combined idea means that you have a wise mindset. Keep in mind that wisdom has a practical sense of putting into action the things you know. You might know a very knowledgeable man who isn't wise. He knows a lot of things, but he doesn't put into practice things that matter. That's what he's talking about here. One Bible scholar wrote that this word meant to think soundly, to use common sense. And that just sort of stuck with me. I couldn't help but think immediately of that you know, little phrase, the problem with common sense is that it is no longer common anymore. There's a nuance of practical sensibility. You could paraphrase the word to use in our own English colloquial phrases, to keep one's head about him, to keep your head, uh, to don't go off the reservation, so so to speak. What Paul is saying here, one author wrote, is that an elder must not be given to wild and foolish ideas. Yes, he must be a man, he writes, who believes that God is the God of the impossible, but he must mix such faith and trust with a good dose of common sense. For God who gave us our hearts is the same God who gave us our heads. Church leaders then use both their hearts and their heads, which is an essential ingredient, isn't it? I mean, elders are going to be involved in all kinds of decision-making. They're going to be involved in all sorts of tangled things and, and conundrums and problems with people and decisions. They're going to need both faith and common sense, that discernment and that wisdom to know when and where to step and walk. Let me add one more thing to this word before we move on. It has an idea of thinking differently, thinking unlike anybody else. Maybe this is why Paul will use this particular word and he'll refer to that word as being part of the lives of every one of those individuals that Titus will minister to. This isn't just for the elder. This is for those who need to begin to think differently. Why? Because we've all been squeezed into the mold. We think like the world. So now we come in and we need to be transformed by the renewing of our what? Our minds, Romans 12. We've we got to begin to think Differently, And listen, when you think differently, that means you will be different. Are you willing? You're no longer going to be influenced by the crowd, but by Christ. 
You're going to be like that one teenage guy I heard being interviewed by, on a Christian radio where, where he said, at my school, I am the peer pressure. It's a powerful statement. I've never forgotten it. Your opinions aren't going to change according to the latest fad, the latest fancy. You're not going to define right or wrong based on the crowd. You're not poll-driven. I've got that on my mind, like everybody else during this election season, don't you? You hear somebody stand up and say their opinion, and you wonder how much of it is related to a poll, and I hope every one of them believe what they say they believe. Tremendous pressure to compromise. One former president of the United States years ago, no longer alive, obviously under the pressure of polls, wrote, and I tucked this into my file and pulled it out again here years afterward. He said, I can't help but wonder what Jesus Christ would have preached if he'd taken a poll. (laughs) I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he'd taken a poll in Egypt. Where would the Reformation have been if Martin Luther had taken a poll in Germany? It isn't the poll that counts. It's what's right and what's wrong. That's what makes good leadership, men with courage and belief in what's right. That makes epics in the history of the world. And I would not only agree, I would add, that's exactly what makes for godly leadership in the church. And so Paul is telling Titus, go find men who will think wisely and in that differently than culture. They're probably worth following. So an elder models personal care, models personal conviction, models personal common sense. Another quality surfaces here on the pages of Paul's letter to Titus. Look at verse 8 again. An elder is, my text translates it, just. Just. He models personal consistency. He's upright. You could translate it. In fact, in these last three characteristics, just, devout, and self-controlled, they all have to do with rightness in relationships. Just refers to an elder's right relationship with others. Devout refers to an elder's relationship with God. And self-control refers to an elder's relationship with oneself, that is, his attitudes and his appetites. We'll talk more about those because we're not going to get there today. But the word just carries the idea of fair play. This is a man that when he shakes your hand, it matters. That's how he has just relationships with others. He shows up and he follows through. The Greeks defined a just man, by the way, as someone who gave to men whatever it was they were due. Simply a man of his word, a man of integrity, who wants to pattern his life after personal Consistency. It relates to a man's efforts, as we say it, to walk the talk, to practice what he preaches. And that's important because a shepherd's life is to be patterned so to reflect the character of the chief shepherd he represents because people are watching. Remember, we talked about that last time we were together. People are watching. And you know that's true as well. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you need to be reminded of it. They're watching you. If you have kids, they're watching. Are they ever watching you? If you have little children, they're watching everything. They don't miss anything. They're going to be able to talk just like you. 
They're that keen of an observer. And even with your accent, they're going to walk just like you. They're going to swing the bat like you do and flip their hair like you do. They're watching, in fact, more than we can imagine. I can remember as a youth pastor many years ago working with a teenager who continually lied. It was nearly impossible to get from him a straight answer. I never knew when he was telling me the truth, and he was often caught in lies. I would discover later that his own father had been found out to be lying often to his company, and eventually because of his, his lying, lost his job. Now let me be quick to declare of any misunderstanding. I'm not implying that every dishonest child has a dishonest parent. I know. Because I was a dishonest child and I had honest parents. The trouble comes when a parent refuses the pattern. When a parent abandons the pattern. Where there is no consistency. There's no right or wrong. They're left to determine their sensitivities. They're left to develop their personal choices, their consistencies based on a missing model. A child hears mom or dad call in sick and and knows they're going to go golfing or shopping. They're not sick. A child gets it. When the telephone rings and they answer it and it's for Uncle Henry and mom says, tell Uncle Henry I'm not here. They get that. That becomes their normal. I read some time ago about a California mother who was observed going through the grocery store just sort of tapping items every so often. She drew attention with hidden cameras, and they began to watch her, and they noticed that her two children coming behind her would pocket the things that she tapped. I wouldn't doubt that one day they'll steal everything from her. The Boston Globe carried an interesting article about setting an example. Your walk measuring up to your talk is rather humorous about living up to practicing what you preach. It it carried an article that covered the annual convention of the American Heart Association's convention. There are hundreds of thousands, evidently, of doctors and nurses and medical personnel and researchers who are members of the American Heart Association. And uh, the particular convention they were covering focused on the fast food industry. And, of course, the horror of it all. And I know that none of you will ever, you know, well, uh, never mind. Okay, but at any rate, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when one cardiologist was interviewed about where he had just come from eating lunch because the reporter saw him coming out of an unnamed fast food restaurant. I won't tell you the name of it, but he had a Big Mac and fries, okay? You just kind of put it together. The reporter went up to him and stuck the microphone in his face and, and asked him if he thought he was setting a bad example. And, and the doctor, a cardiologist, said, and I quote, No, I don't think so. I made sure I took off my name tag before I went in there. <laughs> well, that fixes everything. <laughs> Thank you for that example. Well, in a way, the Apostle Paul is telling the elders that you never get to take your name tag off. That goes basically for every Christian, right? Your name tag stays on. That's the new normal. 
Maybe you're aspiring to leadership, but when you hear talk like that, you're thinking, ah, never mind. Don't aspire to it. Because more than anybody in the flock, the elders, and those who lead, including deacons, and those who teach, you've got a name tag, and it might as well be tattooed on your forehead. You're not taking it off. The word Paul uses here is that your name tag ought to mention or ought to live up to what it implies that you live with this sense which is visible for everyone to see of a Christian. If you're an elder, even more so you provide the pattern for that kind of sensitivity. The stakes are even higher for those of you who lead. Got a good illustration of this. Uh, A number of years ago, on vacation, I slipped away one morning to play nine holes of golf. I like to play alone because of the way I play. And um, I got put into a threesome. I didn't want to play in a threesome. They knew each other, but I went along, and I just sort of tagged along behind them. They are going down the fairway. They are swearing like sailors, and they are telling one story after another, and I just sort of lagged behind, which was easy because I didn't hit the ball as far as they did anyway. But I was back there. Finally, on the fifth tee, one of the guys were standing out there. He looked at me and says, you know, I apologize. We've been leaving you out. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And man, they just turned pale. They began to apologize for their French. I've never taken French, but that wasn't French that I was hearing on the golf course. They even started calling me father. What do you think about that, father? Hey, what, what, father, what do you, and I thought, I don't want to be your father. I'm not your father. Problem is, I had this, I had the name tag on now. For the rest of the game, I had to watch my P's and Q's. In fact, the accountability was a good thing. It was a good thing. And those who aspire to leadership view it as a good thing. It can be painful. It can be intrusive. But they know better than anybody that it's a good thing. Well, we're not going to get to the next three characteristics today, but let me just close with a, with a positive illustration of being just. And I'll take an illustration from the life of a golfer who actually knew what he was doing. His name is Tom Watson, and this comes out of sort of the legend of this man who was known, still is, for his integrity. I'm not sure if he's a believer or not, but he certainly tells the truth and is known for that. He provided a rare example of justice or justness and it surprised everyone. Now, of course, if you know golf, you know he's gone on to win most major championships several times. In the first tournament he ever entered as a young man, very first one, he was making a run for the trophy. The pressure on him as a newcomer was intense as the match progressed. And it was relentless, frankly, he said. He wanted to win so badly. He talked about this was, this was the moment he'd been dreaming about since he was a little boy. On one of the greens, as he moved up to get ready to putt the ball, he put his putter down behind his ball, and too closely and to his dismay, the ball moved ever so slightly. No one saw it. 
This is 40 plus years ago where there weren't cameras on every blade of grass and every, you know, expression. Nobody saw it. But he would say later, I saw it. If he admitted it, he could, of course, lose the hole because he'd have to add a stroke and he could even lose the match. It could cost him so much in his young career. But without much hesitation, he walked over to one of the officials and he said, I moved my ball. And everything just kind of froze. You got to be kidding. He had a stroke added. He lost the hole. The good news is he came back and won the match. But from what I know, I can tell you that his decision to be just, to tell the truth when it would cost him so much, maybe even the match, I guarantee you, that decision to tell the truth means more to him now than a 45-year-old plastic trophy that by now has probably come apart. What really matters, especially for the believer and even more especially to an elder? Well, an elder, according to the mind of God, through Paul to Titus, is to be the one to define what matters. What matters most is demonstrating in his life and all our lives a personal care for those in need, a personal conviction for everything that's good and wholesome, a personal common sense for making wise decisions, a personal consistency of uprightness and integrity. And if we're going to do that, we're going to ask the Lord and we will in a moment, to heighten our sense of conscience. These are attributes of those under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And I've often said that Christian maturity is perhaps not sinning less, but confessing quicker. In fact, finding even more things to confess about, because as you grow, your conscience becomes more and more sensitive, which is a good thing. Charles Wesley wanted such a sensitive conscience to do the right thing and please his Lord. He wrote, he wrote a number of hymn texts and one that never quite made it to the top 50, so to speak, is worthy of mention. It was published in 1749. And with this, I'll wrap it up. The lyrics go like this. I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. Help me the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more may part, no more thy goodness grieve, the family all, the fleshly heart, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O oh God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, 
To me thy power impart, the mountain from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. Oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul and drive me to your blood again, which makes the wounded whole. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the assembly. Thank you for the unique, special presence of your spirit as we gather together, as we anticipate not only what you need to do in our lives, provoking us into love and good works because of our assembly, but that anticipation that you're coming back. And in light of that, redefining what the normal should be. And for those of us who follow you, Lord, we often forget that so many things are new. This is a new normal. Help those who lead in this fellowship, including myself, to lead well. Help those who influence others in this assembly through teaching, leading ministry, serving as elders, deacons, to ultimately pursue your character, your word, what you have defined as good. And we, like Charles Wesley, one of your earlier servants, we run to you and afresh run. We race to the cross from whose shadow we never want to stray. And the blood of Christ, you are Lord, which cleanses us continually from every sin. We have a name tag on, Father, and, and uh, we're grateful you gave it to us. Help us to live in light of it so that our lives ultimately praise and glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we sing and then we'll quit. Praise God from you.